from Brazil to Davis, California, from helicopters to small prop planes, a life spent looking at the world from many different angles. Stay tuned. Good afternoon. Issues and Ideas continues now with Ears on Art. My co-host, Stephen DeLuke, and I produce this program here at the studios of KCBX Public Radio for the California Central Coast. We focus on the visual arts. Last week, we had a conversation with Carl Dempwolf, a landscape painter originally from Germany who now lives in the San Fernando Valley. This week, we're talking with Deladier Almeida, originally from Brazil and now living in Davis, California. These two artists have their work on display at Studios on the Park in Paso Robles. The show runs through March 27th and features their interpretive landscapes. As it turns out, they both start from very real imagery that they take in firsthand and then spend considerable time in the studio exploring how to make it their own. Stephen and I met up with Dell, as he is known, at the studios on the park. Good afternoon, Dell. Good afternoon. Hello there. We're here up in Paso Robles. We always like to start with where you started. I've been drawing and painting since I was very young. Started this urge to, to get people to sit for me when I was about five years old. And so I had my uncles and my, my, the kids in the neighborhood sit for me to draw their pictures. And it was a spontaneous thing that I did not catch from anybody. There were, there were no artists in the family. It was just one of those things that, 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 that I wanted to do. And when you, when you do something as a kid that's slightly different and and, and you get feedback that kind of, that is a feedback and you want to you want to show it off and you want to do it more so that was the engine of my interest in the beginning they probably kept coming and saying do me next yeah, yeah something like that yeah. <laughs> yeah but i was a bit of a pest could you please stop moving you know a five-year-old six-year-old saying that to you. where was this taking place in the state of sao paulo in brazil city of santos in sao paulo are you using paint, pastels? I started with drawings, with graphite drawings, and then I moved on to, to watercolor, which is something that was easily available for a kid, you know, and gouache, you know, opaque watercolors. Right. I didn't come to acrylics until later on. but That just continued as you were growing up? Yeah, it's something that I knew from the start. That was what I was going to do. The question is how I was going to swing it. Uh, I pretty much had my path set when I was pretty young. I knew this. I was going to be making images uh, for the rest of my life, and that was, you know, that was good. It was fine. There was no, no doubt. I studied uh, industrial design. I studied architecture and urban planning before I came to the U.S. and studied art here at UC Davis. You know, it was a, a means of trying to find a, a way of bringing an income-earning path that was as close and parallel to my main interests as, as I could. Did your family move to the States, or did you do it solo? I came alone, yeah. I came with my wife, who is from Southern California. We got married, and, and we moved together back to UC Davis, where she was studying. And I transferred from architecture school, and I started again at UC Davis in the art studio program. 
I am not a graduate of UC Davis, but I was there for two years, so uh -huh. uh, I have very fond memories of that campus and yeah. certainly uh, learned about bicycle traffic. It's mm -hmm. as flat yeah. as a pancake, and bicycles are the uh, prime mode of transportation. And you better learn those rules, because they will run you over if you don't. <laughs> well, and in my day, you got ticketed $5, which in the 60s was a lot of money if mm -hmm. you did not have a light oh, huh? on your mm -hmm. bike at night. Oh. And then we just clipped flashlights and a little mm -hmm. holder yep, on yep, the mm -hmm. candlebars. I did that too. <laughs> How long did it take you once you got to Davis, or was it right away that you kind of knew that you had landed in the world of at least one, if not more, rather exceptional instructors? Oh, I knew right away that there were some very interesting people there, completely unplanned. It just happened to be where I landed. And you can speak about the quality of the work that these people were, were producing. But more than that, there was an affinity with the way uh, some of those instructors thought and, and went about their work that really couldn't have been planned. I'm talking about Roland Peterson and Wayne Thibault and David Hallwell, guys that I really could relate to on various levels, not just in, in the way they, they went about producing work, how they thought of themselves as professional artists, and how seriously they took themselves as such. And that is something that was one of the takeaways for me, you know, it's this, this sense of, of um, being a professional. And that's something that, that Wayne Thiebaud always hammered on, that you need to think of yourself as a professional, just as, as an engineer or, or a doctor or, or a shoemaker. You provide a service, and if you don't think of yourself seriously, then you're not serious and you should be doing something else. If you're going to be a professional painter or a sculptor, take yourself seriously as a, as a professional. And that was a lovely theme. Absolutely. None of this second-class citizenship stuff. No, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you get encouragement as a child as you were drawing? Well, it's that encouragement of, of doing something that I knew that nobody else around me could match. It was uh, self-encouragement. I, I did get exclamations of, of curiosity and awe from others, but uh, was primarily I was pushing myself from a family of longshoremen. My father, my grandparents, both my grandfather's uncles, cousins, they all work as longshoremen. And so it's not exactly the type of uh, uh, ethos that, that is conducive to, you know, sitting around drawing pictures. That was really of no interest to me, but, uh, but yeah, so. I think that it's one of those things that all of us are facing in one way or another is where that support comes from or where it gets diluted. I am very grateful for the fact that I came from a family that never said, don't. Right. It was interesting for me because my father, who was a military professional in the Air Force, was incredibly encouraging, and my mother was not. <laughs> she was like, you know, yeah, it's a cute little hobby, but do something to make a living. And that, that was a bit discouraging. Yeah. yeah. Frankly, um, in counterpoint to, to what I said about having to feel yourself a professional and just as legitimate a professional as an engineer or a doctor, there is a significant difference. An engineer has a machine behind him or her or her, which is the, the, the educational system and process that, that trains that person specifically for that human activity. You have this knowledge base that's given to you that you start from. Well, as a painter, you are on your own. And if you do not find your own means of continuously reinvigorating your own interest 
And that, that has to come from yourself. If you cannot find that, you're going to either go stale or you're going to be discouraged and move on. So, uh, yeah, you are a professional. Yeah, you are serious about what you do. But you are walking alone, largely, as a painter. And your indication about the faculty at UC Davis was that that was a mutual place, at least the, the three that you mentioned were coming from? They took themselves seriously, and they told whoever was willing to listen that you better do it too and move along as, as if you were legitimate and you meant something because you are and you do. Yeah, I imagine that their uh, individual successes in the, in the late 60s sort of uh, propelled the change of that sense that the art department was, was just this little appendix that was of no consequence. But it made itself known. It staked a place for itself in the history of, of the education of art in the, in the late 20th century in this country due to those individuals. Probably time for our disclaimer, do you think? <laughs> Wayne Tebow. Yes, we've been trying to get an interview with Wayne for about five years now. Uh -huh. That's a luck. Uh -huh. <laughs> we've discovered that. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, he's very private. He doesn't like to, uh, to find himself in, in you know, public situations mm -hmm. much. He did come here back in late 80s, I think it was, as a guest artist in uh -huh. San Luis Obispo. I saw him a few months ago. Um, at the opening of Roland Peterson's show at the Pence Gallery in Davis, Wayne showed up by himself. He's 95 years old. Right. And he, he drove from Sacramento. And he was there with a, a windbreaker with paint smeared on the back of him, <laughs> looking at this spritey gentleman there, you know, talking, walking around, and like he was 75. It was lovely. You studied with all three? Yeah. And what kinds of differences in styles and other things were you picking up from that? I studied uh, a lot of photography and printmaking with Roland Peterson. He worked with uh, Minor White in the 50s in San Francisco. So he had a, a lot of photography uh, in his background. And, and you know his work uh, reflects that, that way of looking at things, which I learned a lot from him. How to uh, frame your field, how, how to select that which attracts you and so they can you parse this, this vast array of visual input and isolate that which you're going to use that moment. So that is something that I spent a lot of time working and talking about with Roland. If you do a lot of photography, as I did with him, you, you learn also a lot about tonal composition. And that's one of the strong things about his work, uh, in my opinion, and that's something that I've uh, spent a lot of time learning from him. In my case, very deliberately, I was very interested in that, in looking at how he went about discussing and critiquing photography and how do you, how do you move that on onto the, the realm of painting it, they're very close in, in that sense when you look at a painting you do want to try to isolate and uh, if you can uh, eliminate the dimension of color to, to analyze it if you can do that you, you get yourself a, a good thing going because you can you can you know have a clearer perception of certain things that uh, when you look at all the color and all the other dimensions of, uh, of the painting it, they get in your way of having this, this clearer vision of, of some fundamental things that are happening. That was very useful for me. I certainly know just from the photography that I do how much fun it is to really force myself to do my cropping in the taking right, of the picture right. as opposed to, to, to later, later on. Yeah. We are faced with, with a new set of problems. Every time you get a bigger 
sensor with more pixels in it, mm -hmm. you're more tempted to not worry about what you're looking at. Just photograph, mm -hmm. knowing that you can crop and you're still going to have enough information. That's a trap. That's, that's a fallacy because really, uh, I mean, you, you can just spend all your days taking pictures of everything you look at, and that's fine. But, you know, it's when you, when you stop and you, and you look for that which, you know, is of, of value in the scene, that's when you, you're learning something. We have interviewed some photographers who are in their 70s and 80s, and they were imparting the knowledge of how important it was because you're setting up a camera and you have a single frame of film there and how important it was to get the composition correct because you couldn't take 2,000 images you know, no, no, and no. go back to the house of the computer and to start editing. That's right. You got three or four plates there, mm -hmm. and you better really get down to isolating that that moment and thinking carefully of course when you have a 35 millimeter and you're going around looking for, for things that's a different mo but uh but when you're doing a medium format right. that, th those things are valuable and they're they're complicated they are onerous and you have to really think and think and think and think and but that right there there's a lot going happening that moment uh, uh, for a student but you can learn uh quite a bit about yourself and about your the field and, and about the medium you're listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. Our guest today is Deladier Almeida, a native of Brazil who has been living in Davis, California for several decades. We continue now with more conversation about his incredible education that he received at that university. In the coursework, were you involved with the photography classes before the painting? Simultaneously, I, I spent two years doing photography with Roland Peterson uh, while I was taking painting and drawing classes with, with Wayne and with uh, Dave and with um, Roy DeForest and others in, in, the, in the program. God, those names just keep dropping off. To the <laughs> uh <-huh. Yeah. laughs> well, yeah, Roy DeForest actually came here, too, to give a mm -hmm. lecture one time, which yeah. was very special. Do you remember when or how you were making those transitions, format the style that you were doing with the landscape? It's like you have a bag, in the beginning it's empty, and you start throwing things in it, and it stays, you reach for it when you need it. The idea is to, is to have those things down there in the bigger bag, not the littler bag, that's the rational bag, but the other one, there aren't as many uh, vectors uh, to get to it. It's, mm -hmm. it's more of an amorphous path, but, but it's there. It's what we tend to call intuition, which is uh, a, a means of, of retrieving information that has been acquired, right? It's one, one single step. So you, you throw that in there and you, uh, you know, reach for it when you need. Of course, uh, you do need to, to elaborate those things in your mind to solidify them uh, in, in, in the bag. Uh, you know, uh, thinking of photography, thinking of, of cropping, thinking of, of composing on the fly is, is something that I carry with me on a daily basis. And I, everything I look at, I'm always uh, putting a frame around it and trying to have the deliberate tunnel vision so that I can isolate it from the rest. Because if, if you're interested, if you're fascinated, enamored with your visual experience, and, but you don't you don't put some some uh, blinds on yourself on you you're gonna be you're gonna go nuts there's no end to it you need to learn those personal um, means of, of dealing with things I remember seeing a, an Italian movie uh, in which there was a painter this painter he was a bit of a nutcase and he went around like this he got two fingers horizontally and two fingers vertically make a little square everything he looked at went around with his fingers in front of his eye the other one closed framing scenes 
I thought that was the neatest thing, and I, I use that constantly now, uh, even when the, the fingers are not there. That's kind of the way, you know, I, I use photography and my learning of photography uh, when I'm trying to isolate the parts of a scene. Two of the paintings here, there'll be a lot more out in the exhibit itself. Uh -huh. Do you want to talk about how any of this came to happen, or just respond to it? Yeah, it's, I have to push through some things when, when doing these aerial views because of the fact that Wayne Thiebaud did aerial views, among other things. I do it because I want to do it, and I like doing it, and that, it's a great opportunity. Where we live in, in, in Central California, in, in the Central Valley, these are things that are, to me, fascinating, and I continue to explore them because they mean a lot to me. They're, that's where I live, and, and want to paint the landscape, but it's very flat. If you are going out to paint the landscape, they're going to be painting trees, uh, <laughs> and that's it. Uh, so I like this quilt sense, and I like the perspective. I like the, the opportunity for geometry. As I said, I studied industrial design. I studied architecture. Geometry is something that entrances me. I enjoy the, the intellectual aspect of it, and I enjoy the aesthetic aspect of, of bringing the geometry and uh, wrapping uh, into a solid construct. I'm trying to convey a sense of movement and of perspective and of aerial perspective as well. Variation on chroma and reduction of contrast the farther away you go, those things are known. But in addition to that, I try to make the scene speak for itself and, and the composition develop on its own. I often create grids before I start composing, and there are irrespective of, of the, the actual stimulus, the scene that I'm going to paint, I, I throw those grids in there, those lines, and then I try to snap things into the, into the grid. And that tr triangulation creates opportunities for invention. If I were to just be looking at a scene and try to depict it, they wouldn't be there. So I, I create these problems and then try to go about solving them. Helicopter, airplane, where were you? Helicopters, <laughs> airplanes, the last four years it's been airplanes. And for the last five years, I had a friend who, uh, who was a farmer in the Central Valley, and he, he loves to take me up, and so I've done many, many flights with him, with Dave, David Kirsten. Now he's, he's retired. But you know, uh, each one of those flights, there's enough information there for a lifetime. I like seeing things from, from the air, and, and one of my seminal experiences, the first time I came to the U.S. was the first time I flew in an airplane, and I was just mesmerized looking out that window and seeing you know, the earth and, and occupation from that point of view, which was you know, it's in human point of view. I remember a flight coming into Munich. I'm pretty certain I was the only one in the airplane that was just mesmerized by what I was looking at. I've seen and, that. I've been there. And in this case, it was the way that the fields, it wasn't U.S., it wasn't uh -huh. grid. It was just this sense of somebody had to be planning this who could have this aerial view kind of feeling because uh -huh. you couldn't have done it more beautifully. Yeah, it is fabulous. I, I know exactly the scene. I, the area close to Munich, I know I know it well. Yeah, it's fabulous. Well, it's nice to have that confirmed. Like I did photograph it. So the photographs are being taken in color or black and white? In color, and it really doesn't matter to me. I mean, these are very bad photographs of fabulous things. Often bring pieces of one scene and another scene. I'm, I'm, I'm using these things like, like a language, and they're just serving their purposes to tell a larger story, which is not uh, immediate and local. It's, it's a larger story. Seldom do I go back and take a look as, I, as I'm painting, because really it's way past that point in the, in the process anymore. And these are largely uh, abstract 
uh, compositions. There's a lot of abstraction. I mean, as I said, I'm treating these things as language. The, the levees, the fields, their separation, the water, the, the shadows, the reflections in the water, all these things, they're recurring elements that, that I'm just using again and again, you know, like little friends and how that evolves and what that evolves into. Uh, these things are beginning to evolve. You know, the trees, they, they, they resemble creatures. And you know, it's, Again, how, how can you keep the kid in you uh, in a plane, right? And that's what painting gives. That the kid stays alive. And there are two different sizes here. I often paint the same scene again and again in different formats, and it's interesting to see how that same scene will re- reflect itself when you change the format. And I, I'm not looking at the old, the other painting when I'm painting the new one, but I do want to look at it afterwards and see which way I went and how I changed my approach from one to the other when addressing the same passage. And that is that is interesting. The question is how how you uh, remember those things, how you manage to create these mnemonic devices so that you can apply certain acquired solutions to the next painting because these paintings are gone, right? And I don't see them again. I have photographs of them, but they, they really don't tell the story. You have to look at a painting to, to, to get the story of how it was done. I remember this one passage that I painted five years ago, and it's clear in my mind. I know what sort of audiobook I was listening to at the moment, and I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough that there's clearly a, a rearranging of my neural pathways because I'm doing this so much, that permits me to to have that that type of uh, recall. And it would seem that quite a few people could be going, what do you mean the painting is more real than the photograph? And yet in our conversation with Carl, he was saying much the same thing in terms of his outdoor sketches that he does. And by the time he brings that back to the studio and then the challenge of how am I interpreting this? What am I doing? Because I'm not just copying what I saw. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, copying what you saw is no game at all. This is something that's open to everybody's interpretation of how you go about doing it. It's entirely personal and individual. But to me, what, what the challenge is, what keeps me going back and, and looking forward to my Mondays is the fact that I'm going to, going to deal with the challenge of bringing this void into into a construct that's, that has its own solutions and it, it has its own character. Each one of them, to me, is, is successful when it has its single voice. It's interesting to hear yeah. this, this kind of a conversation, how you come up with the compositions and how you play with the light uh-huh. and, and the grid factors and things like that. Because yours are more right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Still life, human figure, things like that, yeah. Yeah, I read an interview that Innes gave, this is in the middle 19th century, and he was talking about that the one thing that you need in a painting for it to be strong, it needs to, to give forth one emotion. It has to be centralized, unified, and concise uh, transfer of that one emotion that the painter felt. And that, that's a very interesting concept, and I try to, to hold on to that. So I try to extrapolate that a little bit. It's not just one emotion, but one, one visual feel or one idea. In, in the case of that larger one, is the movement that I'm, I'm recommending for the path of the gaze. Here in this other one is more of a chromatic sense. My intention here was to create a chromatic harmony above all. In looking at the larger one and not being somebody who's just always thrilled to be in an airplane, I can hear the engines. I'm right there. You know that that horizon is going to be that much closer to you very soon. 
whether I'm painting a, a portrait or a figure or a still life or a landscape, I have the same a basic approach to, to looking at the construction of, of the image. I try to isolate these various dimensions of the work in progress so that I try to see them individually. And then I'm always trying to add new dimensions to my layering. They are, you know, the, the formal composition, they're the chromatic composition, the, the temperature scheme, the edge, the application of paint, the tonal disposition of the elements. The more you're able to, to separate them in your mind and look at them individually, in the context of painting, just like layering, the richer your understanding of the work in progress will be, and the better you remember the solutions that you were able to arrive at as you compose things. So that's, that's my, my challenge, that's the way I, I think of it. If you were looking at work from 20 years ago, are you seeing difference in approach? Absolutely, there are things that, that, I, that I'm doing today that I couldn't possibly have done 10 years ago. Uh, and it's, it's very clear to my eyes. When I, when I started, painting exclusively, and that was not until 2002. That's when I uh, stopped doing everything else. I used to do uh, illustration and graphic design and you know, support my family. In, in 2002, I had the opportunity to just stop doing all those things and start painting professionally. From that day to today, I keep a, a very scrupulous diary of everything that I do. So I know every painting that I've ever done and how much time it took and when I did it in, in a brief description of the things that I was dealing with. So I do have a very clear picture of the things that I can do today that I couldn't possibly have done 10 years ago because I remember very clearly the challenges that I was not able to meet 10 years ago that I can now. And then looking for the next challenge. And then, yeah, that's right. You know, too bad that we cannot uh, predict what, what, <laughs> what the solutions are going to be 10 years from now in the future. We're often curious about what happens when you find yourself stuck? My ambition and my skill set, they cannot be too far apart. Mm -hmm. I try to push my ambition up, but try to keep an eye on where it goes. I don't usually get stuck because I got a, I wouldn't say a map, but I tackle that which I can see through, which is not to say I'm not cranking up the turkeys. They, they happen and you cannot expect every single thing you do or even the majority of the things that you do or even half of the things you do to be complete successes. And it's a small percentage of what you do that you can consider, okay, it, it's not about that. It's about facing issues, facing mm -hmm. challenges and resolving them and somehow incorporating those solutions to, uh, to the next piece. And that's, that's how you build up. The creative process is really a process. The notion that we're just born with it and the days just flit on by with no trouble whatsoever is very nice to get dispelled. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it's all hogwash. There's none of that. There's no, no born with anything. I mean, some people are very good at math from the start. Some people are, you know, born 100-meter sprinters, right? And I think also age and the experience of life creates a sense of maturity in your works. Painting is it's editing. It's editing visual experience is what painting is. It's, it's how you purify the filter that is your mind. You have to have time to experience this understanding of you as a, as a, as a translating agent, as a filtering agent. So you have, to, you have to develop your voice, which is inherently unique. I don't think that it's a far stretch to basically say that that is the process of creativity, is that filtering, whatever the medium might be. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, irrespective of, of medium. Well, that's profound. <laughs> <laughs> well, Del, thank you very much, and uh, we'll definitely make sure that people know about this exhibit, and glad that it's here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a lovely time we spent together.
Thank you. You have been listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. Our guest today was Deladier Almeida, who's a landscape painter who lives and works in Davis, California. Last week, we interviewed Carl Dempwolf, also a landscape painter. The Dempwolf program, as well as others from the past, can be found in the KCBX archives on their website. Best to do a search for Ears on Art programming. The two of them are the featured artists at Studios on the Park in Paso Robles. Their show is up through the 27th of this month, and for hours of operation, please go to the Studios on the Park website. Next month, Stephen DeLuke and I will be bringing you a composite of some previous shows. This is in celebration of our 18th anniversary on air. We cannot thank you enough for your interest and your support in this program. Via KCBX, it is streamed worldwide, but of course, this is the only station that broadcasts this show, or to our knowledge, anything quite like it. This is Chrissy Hewitt on behalf of Stephen DeLuke, wishing you a gorgeous spring, and thank you for listening. <laughs>